Contented Media presents Dr. Bitcoin, the man who wasn't Satoshi Nakamoto, an original podcast series with Mark Hunter and Arthur Van Pelt. Hello and welcome to Dr. Bitcoin, the man who wasn't Satoshi Nakamoto, the podcast that searches through the reduced section of the Craig Wright supermarket in search of the mini bottles of champagne and the fancy crisps. My name is Mark Hunter, author, amateur physicist and professional tired person. And with me, as always, is the man who is to Craig Wright what a wasp is to a picnic. It's Arthur Van Pelt. Arthur, have you been immersing yourself in the Hodonaut evidence in the past few days? Oh, you're not going to believe this, how much I am enjoying this. <laughs> I bet you are. I had requested the stuff from the court in Oslo. I received an email yesterday and indeed I could download a package and in that package was a lot of the material, but not all, unfortunately. But I found on Reddit someone who had more material in his package and I downloaded that and oh man, <laughs> great. So it's going to be quite a, an interesting episode when we come to it, isn't it? Absolutely. Before we get to that, however, there were some very interesting developments that took place elsewhere in the crazy world of Craig Wright and BSV this month, although we will start, as usual, with Lawsuit Corner. While the Hodlinaut trial was going on, while Craig Wright was testifying in fact, we received the filing for the blockbuster £9.9 billion class action lawsuit against four cryptocurrency exchanges, Binance, Shapeshift, Kraken and Bitilicious, for conspiring to delist BSV in 2019. We already knew some of the basics of this following last month's announcement from BSV, but we got more details this month and more importantly some all-important numbers from the filing itself. Handily, the filing offers us a clear-cut overview of the claim in question, which is this. According to the application, following debate in the cryptocurrency community regarding claims by Dr. Craig Wright that he was the individual behind the pseudonym Satoshi Nakamoto, there were a series of tweets between 12th of April 2019 and 19th of April 2019 in which various cryptocurrency exchanges disclosed their intention to delist BSV and called on other cryptocurrency exchanges also to delist. This culminated in the respondents or proposed defendants announcing that they would delist, and ultimately then delisting BSV. The delisting events took place between 15th of April 2019 and 5th of June 2019. Now here, according to the filing, is the impact this had. It is alleged that by participating in the collusive tweets and or the delisting events, the respondents, proposed defendants, thereby engaged in an anti-competitive agreement and or concerted practice which had as its object or effect the prevention, restriction or distortion of competition within, and then it lists some competition treaties. The infringement caused the price of BSV to fall in the immediate aftermath. The infringement, which had both immediate and persistent long-term effects for BSV holders, including the foregone growth effect, meaning the lost opportunity of BSV developing into a top-tier cryptocurrency and the expropriation of coins from users of the Binance or Kraken cryptocurrency exchange, thereby caused loss and damage. Now, Arthur, two things here. 
Firstly, we're always told that the BSV price doesn't matter. In fact, Craig Wright himself has strongly criticised anyone looking to make money from trading BSV. The line is that price is irrelevant because adoption is everything and price will follow. So how exactly does being delisted from four exchanges, including Bitilicious, impact institutional adoption of BSV? Yeah, good one. But, <laughs> yeah, my, my first thought is that yeah, let's clarify that Craig Wright also once predicted that BSV was heading for $1,200 with 98% certainty. So <laughs> Craig himself is also no stranger to uh, the phenomenon of uh, trading. <laughs> to add, when, when institutions uh, would need BSV, but well, we know they don't because there's no institutional demand whatsoever, but they indeed need to have places with a lot of liquidity. So it's a bit of a chicken and egg uh, question. Are there no uh, institutions coming in because there's no liquidity or is there no liquidity because the institutional demand is nil? So how I see it, when something is growing organically, these processes are normally in, in, in lockstep. You know, currently there is no serious exchange that is expecting uh, institutions to come in uh, that will demand BSV liquidity. And there is indeed no serious institution is demanding any BSV liquidity to fulfill their needs because they don't have customers using BSV. So overall, BSV is uh, simply irrelevant from uh, from all angles. Yeah, it, it totally is. And also... It's interesting that BSV apparently missed out on becoming a, quote, top-tier cryptocurrency when Craig, and now Calvin too, insist that BSV isn't a cryptocurrency at all. <laughs> Which is it? Yeah, <laughs> isn't it funny? <laughs> they try to create their own cringe Bitcoin nomenclature in, uh, in their inner circles, but they realize that when they have to communicate with the big bad world out there, yeah, they get nowhere with their uh, fringe uh, narrative. Well, they just change their minds whenever it suits them, don't they? Yeah, that's, uh, that's how they roll. So let's look at the numbers for a minute. And first, the number of claimants, which essentially is the number of people BSV claims says were holding BSV coins when the delistings began. Now, they split these into three groups. Subclass A is made up of class members who held BSV coins on 11th of April 2019 and sold at least some of their coins thereafter, but before midnight on 29th of July 2022. And BSV claims says there are 155,000 of these. Subclass B is proposed to be of people who held BSV coins on the 11th of April 2019 and continued to hold their BSV coins up to 29th of July 2022. And BSV claims says there are 75,000 of these. And finally, subclass C, which they say are users of Binance and Kraken who held BSV coins in their accounts on 11th of April 2019 and lost access to their BSV coins as a result of the delisting by Binance or Kraken. And BSV claims says there are 12,000 of these. For those whose maths isn't up to snuff, that's a total of 242,000 people. Where did they get these figures from? They don't say. Arthur, do you think this is a feasible number of BSV holders at the time, bearing in mind this is only UK participants? No, certainly not. Like I said before, when you look at supply and demand, then adoption goes in lockstep with each other. And the BSV camp presumes that if these delistings, those delistings which mostly happened because of Craig's defamation lawsuits, had not taken place, then adoption on the demand side would have been way higher. But that's simply a wrong perception of reality. 
many other delistings, not only by exchanges, but also by, you might remember, uh, several mining pools, data service companies, app builders. Uh, these also followed to uh, delist uh, BSV and uh, stop uh, discontinued with uh, using BSV simply because BSV, let's be honest, is technically not very solid. It's not a very stable uh, protocol. And let's not forget the data storage requirements uh, for those who run a node. And the exchanges uh, fall under that. Interestingly, uh, there is this liar guy, his name is Will McKenzie, and he said on Twitter, I suspect they will have a number of people wanting to claim, have done a rough estimate and then extrapolated the figures uh, based on how many holders there would have been on exchanges. And I think Will uh, is uh, spot on here. Uh, this is uh, no doubt how it happened. But it went seriously wrong in the extrapolation. Yeah, someone's pressed the wrong button on the calculator. Someone's pressed times rather than plus, I think. Next to the money. BSV claims and CoinGeek trumpeted the £9.9 billion figure when the case was first announced. But the filing revealed that this was the absolute top end of the potential claim. The bottom end? £51 million, giving us a 99.5% spread between the maximum and minimum expected payout. And here's how those payouts might break down. Class A are looking to get between 19.4 and 20.6 million, an average payout of £130. Class B is looking at a payout of up to £9 billion, an average payout of £120,000 at this price. And Class C are looking to get between 5.9 million and 925.7 million, an average payout of between £492 and £77,141. <laughs> okay. Now, I don't know much about class action lawsuits, but these seem like ludicrously large valuations gaps. I mean, for a start, it's a £9.85 billion difference. Yeah, crazy, crazy. <laughs> Please allow me to drop a bomb on this case already, because I really think that the payout can be expected to be 0.0. Because exchanges are private companies and they can make any decision they like for any reason they like about the tokens and, and all the altcoins and some people call them shitcoins mm -hmm. uh, that they list on their uh, platforms. So I think uh, that will be reason enough for the judges uh, to reject these claims of the BSV camp uh, from the get-go. But well, you never know, of course, so let's see, maybe the judges uh, see some merits anyway uh, that they want to discuss with the parties involved. Uh, you might remember that happened also in, uh, in the Pineapple Hack uh, case. One judge uh, rejected uh, the merits, but it ended up that Craig uh, headed his way in, uh, in appeal anyway. So you, you never know how a judge uh, will roll with these uh, things. In terms of what happens next, the Competition Appeals Tribunal will hold a certification hearing in the next few weeks to decide whether the case has any merit, and if so, whether the opt-out method chosen by BSV claims is the appropriate one. I think we covered this before, but for a claim of this size, they're going to need one hell of a lot of evidence, which we know so far extends to a few tweets by the exchanges in question, and it's a racing certainty that no emails or other communications have been requested from the exchanges yet. So the tribunal is going to have to rule on what's publicly available, which of course will have been twisted seven ways to Sunday by the BSV claims people. Yeah. Nevertheless, the filing says that BSV claims considers the claims which are sought to be combined are strong and have a real prospect of success. Yeah, good luck.
The other big story we need to cover in Lawsuit Corner this month, unfortunately, is the kerfuffle regarding Kyle Roche of the crypto-focused law firm Roche Friedman. Now, for various reasons, we're not going to go into the whole story. There's plenty of reporting out there that you can find if you so desire. But what's of importance to us is how it relates to Craig Wright and, more loosely, BSV. The first thing to note is that it has the potential to impact the Kleiman versus Wright case, which is still at the appeals stage. Arthur, what's the story here? Yeah, I have the same as you, Mark. I I, I also don't follow it much because these uh, illegally made uh, recordings, uh, I think it was earlier this year, where Kyle Roche was uh, bragging about a few things related to his uh, profession. But to be honest, the recordings that I've seen uh, online, yeah, I, I could not find so much... Um, that was really seriously wrong uh, on uh, what, what he actually said. But what, what I see happen, of course, is that in, in this small circle of media around uh, CoinGeek and, and, uh, and, and, and some Norway guy, Hans Grid Andersen, what is his name again? Some Christiansen, Christian something? I know who you mean. Christiansen, yeah, yeah, that guy. Yeah, they pump it up like uh, like the Martians have arrived on Earth or something. <laughs> but in the aftermath, let, let's be honest, uh, of course, Kyle Roche pulled himself from several lawsuits uh, due to the reputational damage that he ran into and uh, on some other places, including the climate-related lawsuits. It is requested by his opponents that he, and if I remember well, not only he, actually the whole Rose Friedman office should uh, be kicked from those cases. And that is what they then request of, uh, of the judge. So let's see what comes of this all. I expect, to be honest, that Kyle Roche will strike back hard uh, someday because these recordings were illegally made uh, after all. Mm, yeah, we'll see if he's got anything he can come back with on that. The second thing to note is how Calvin Eyre took the news. When a BSV fan pointed out that Mastercard was an investor of Ava Labs, whose founder Emin Gunsaira is the other party in the expose and on whose behalf Roche took down Syra's avowed enemy, Craig Wright, the puzzle pieces all landed together with a clunk in Air's empty head. There it is, direct connection to Digital Currency Group, Blockstream, Tether and the D-List exchanges. It's all the same group attacking Craig. He continued on this thread, saying, Now, next shoe to drop is evidence connecting this illegal conspiracy against Satoshi to Blockstream, Tether, Granth, McCormack and the D-List exchanges and my friend Roger Ver. It's just a matter of time now. This wasn't enough. There is already a direct line to Granth and McCormack from this in Arty, which is you, I think, Arthur. Yeah, it's funny. They call me uh, Arty a lot. Uh, some of my friends do, but especially in the BSV camp, many of them call me Arty for some reason. Yeah, It's a cute little nickname for you. I think it's quite sweet. It's funny. <laughs> um, Calvin Air continued. We know also that Tether funded Granth and they work with DCG and Blockstream and DCG and Ver overlap on all the exchanges attacking BSV. This is not rocket science. Arthur, it's beyond the resources of this podcast to go out and prove if this is remotely true or not. But a couple of things uh, strike me here. Firstly, Calvin Eyre seems completely incapable of considering that the likes of Peter McCormack, Hodlinort, Tether and the companies he mentioned might independently dislike Craig, doesn't he? Like many, many people around the world also seem to do. Just because a lot of people don't like someone, it doesn't mean they're conspiring together to bring them down, does it? Yeah, exactly. There is no real evidence whatsoever to support such a silly uh, conspiracy th theory 
I think it was the start, the weekend before the whole not uh, trial started, there was actually a Norway uh, magazine. I found uh, the actual quote that Teeter has nothing to do with uh, with Hoddlenot. They didn't sponsor him. Teeter is not involved in, in any sense with Hoddlenot. Oh, don't ruin their fantasy, though. They, you know, they they like it. It makes them comfortable. You're spoiling their fun. Yeah, yeah, that's what uh, we are doing for. Uh... More than a year already, don't we? <laughs> <laughs> That's true. Um, also, he mentioned Hodlinort and McCormack being part of this. The thing is, they were two of the thousands of people calling Wright a fraud at the same time, and yet they were the two that Wright himself picked to sue. So you can't then turn around and say, oh, they're all part of the conspiracy, when your mate is the one who picked them out in the first place. If it had been two other people, he would have said the exact same thing, wouldn't he? Yeah. Just like that you and me are paid handsomely by the MasterCard and the Blockstream cabal, Mark. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so are 7,000 other people, it appears. We are all on the payroll of them. Well, it's funny you should mention that, actually, because just today I had someone send me a Twitter DM and they said they wanted to um, ask me some questions about the podcast. I was like, yeah, that's fine. Yeah, go ahead. And they took about seven hours to reply and then replied, never mind, I listened more and it's quite clear to me that someone is paying you to do this podcast with AP. I have had calls with documentary makers who have been funded to make a documentary about crypto and told explicitly that they can't mention Craig or BSV. I expect that you have the same kind of deal but the reverse, only negative rhetoric about him, nothing else. Please try and be a better person. And (laughs) this made me laugh because... Um, firstly, we know of a few documentaries that specifically mention Craig Wright. And also, the reason anyone funding a documentary might not want to mention him is because he will sue them. That's the reason why they don't want him mentioned. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Crazy. I've said this before, though. Like, they seem to think that MasterCard and the Digital Currency Group, their best way of keeping Craig down is by paying people to badmouth him on Twitter and Reddit and make a podcast about him, which gets, you know, we, we've got like 20,000 listens, but, you know, it's a few hundred each time. A few hundred people aren't going to bring him down. And if they really wanted to bring him down, they could just 51% attack the blockchain, probably for cheaper. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. You can buy BSV out in, in, in a few days. Yeah. We are doing this for more than a year. They could have been wiped out like this in, in no, yeah, like you said, with a 51% attack. So, yeah, no, yeah. I don't know. Crazy. Of course, Air wasn't the only one crowing about an anti-BSV conspiracy, with plenty using Roche's admittedly appalling behaviour to circle the wagons and prove their theories once and for all. These really don't need going into. Again, they're out there if you want to find them, you weirdos. And I really don't want to study the podcast with this nonsense anymore, but there is one last thing about this whole episode that is extremely ironic. One of the things the BSV community got so riled up about was the following... We can reveal that the pact directs Roche Friedman and their leader, Kyle Roche, to use the American legal system, gangster style, to attack and harm crypto organisations and projects that might compete with Ava Labs or Avalanche in some way. Now, those with good memories might get a vague tinkling of familiarity here. Let's look back at the words of one Craig Wright at the end of the July CoinGeek conference. Um, but we can actually integrate this in ourselves and help people on board. So uh, that's my offer at the moment. I mean, this is the carrot and the stick. So um, 
the hard way, easy way, I don't care. It's yeah. going to happen. There's no one I, I know of who isn't breaking an in-chain patent at the moment <laughs> in this industry. And I can't go after everyone at once. I, sure. mean, I mean, we can do one or two a year, and we'll start with the big ones. So the small ones might survive a little while. Yeah. But I might randomly pick a small one to pick on. Sure. Um, and it would be much easier. I mean, um, I, I've said I, I've studied um, history and Temujin and things like this, and I believe in his strategy. Yeah. And he used to go up to um, cities and, and basically come up with the, you can join me or not. <laughs> and those who joined him became part of the empire. It was peaceful. They grew. It was wonderful. And it, it was different for those who didn't. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> Arthur... Do BSV fans have any right to be aggrieved at Kyle Roche over this when Craig Wright's doing the exact same thing? Yeah, it appears not, doesn't it? <laughs> Presuming Kyle's illegally obtained uh, quotes are uh, interpreted in the right way, which I doubt, then it's indeed uh, the pot uh, blaming the cattle for being black. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. And further, the CryptoLeaks report also said that the secret pact allowed Roche Friedman to secretly pursue Emin Gunsaira's personal vendettas against individuals. Arthur, if this is true, what's the difference between this and Calvin Eyre enabling Craig Wright to pursue his own personal vendettas against Roger Ver, for instance? Yeah, I don't see much uh, difference, sir, Mark. <laughs> it's exactly the same. Yeah. And the last thing... The BSV community were also aghast at this action from Roche Friedman. In their American class actions, they propose a class of people whom they claim have been harmed, for example because they lost money trading a cryptocurrency. They then create a lawsuit in their name, for example claiming the cryptocurrency is an illegal security, and therefore that those developing or promoting the blockchain involved, or those running crypto exchanges that enabled them to trade the cryptocurrency, are liable for the losses of everyone in the class. In the United States, they only have to find one person willing to be a representative plaintiff for the class to initiate action. Arthur, tell me again about the BSV claims lawsuit. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's the same thing, isn't it? <laughs> Did I mention uh, the pot and the kettle already? <laughs> I know, it's literally the same thing. And I, I just, I love this fact that the BSV community has these blinders on when it comes to the actions of their own leaders. Like what their guys are doing is perfectly right and just. When their opposition does the exact same thing, how dare they? Yeah, but it works the same when they face rulings in a lawsuit. When it is in their advantage, they are cheering upon it. But when it is in their disadvantage, well, look at, for example, uh, our friend uh, Kurt Wuckert. He will just not accept that when a court uh, is declaring that Craig is not Satoshi. He said, yeah, I will not accept it because I have my own rule that, uh, what was it? Um, you can't prove a negative. Yeah, you can't prove a negative. And so when it is in court proven in another way that Craig is not Satoshi, then he will use his own rule uh, that you cannot prove a negative and he will still you know, disregard uh, the court ruling. Yeah, but that's not how it works, guys. <laughs> This whole thing led to Wright's legal team filing to not just have Roche, but the entire Roche-Friedman team removed from the case, as we said, saying that, on camera, Roche admits at length to a serious conflict of interest, undisclosed principles, a course of conduct that is unlawful on its face, and a fraud on the court in every case in which his firm has appeared, including this one. Wright's team attests that this is enough to get Roche-Friedman kicked from the case, but Arthur, most of the complaints seem to be about why Kyle Roche brings cases and not how he acts when he's working on them. And as you said, as far as I can see, there's no suggestion of improper actions with the Craig Wright case, regardless of why it's been brought. 
And surely, at this late stage, the reasons why he brought the case four and a half years ago are moot, aren't they? Yeah, totally. Of course they are uh, totally moot. Avalanche and, and, and the related companies, uh, Avalabs, I think, uh, they didn't even exist back then, so there's no relationship from that angle anyway. If what was revealed showed that he had acted illegally within the confines of the court case, yeah, I could say absolutely, get him off the case. But there's nothing in the case itself that was illegal, was there? Maybe because of the reputational damage, it, it, it might make some sense to, uh, to the judge, so we, uh, we have to wait for that ruling, um, what, they, what they think about it. But on the other hand, it's all about uh, Avalanche, the, the blockchain, and BSV. But that whole case of Kleiman versus Wright had nothing to do with BSV itself. It had to do with uh, a partnership uh, that they thought was uh, was existing between Dave Kleiman and Craig Wright in the early days when no, when Eamon, uh, that Eamon guy uh, didn't even know about Bitcoin, uh, probably. Mm-hmm. I don't see the angle how they think they can connect uh, Eamon with uh, BSV and uh, his Avalanche uh, project by means of the of the climate case. I, I just don't see it. No, I don't get it either. Not a clue. We also have a couple of housekeeping points regarding Wright's ongoing legal cases. First, this month saw some movement on the costs over the Wright versus McCormack case, which we already know is going to be worth millions of pounds. What we don't know yet is who ends up footing the bill. Although, Arthur, we learnt something just today about that, didn't we? Yeah, we did, Mark. But first, uh, hey, you might remember that we discussed this in, in another episode uh, before, that this judge uh, Chamberlain, he used uh, the so-called Joseph versus Spiller principle, which means that uh, the claimant had brought an, uh, a sham legal case with false evidence and is therefore not considered uh, to be the successful party. But because there is no truth defense, then the libel has taken place. So the claimant was rewarded a tiny nominal damage of, and in the uh, Joseph versus uh, Spiller case, it was uh, one penny. <laughs> um, and in Craig's case, uh, yeah, he won, quote unquote, an insultingly low uh, one British pound. It's my firm impression that this principle will also be used when it comes to the cost ruling uh, that we're going to see. So my educated guess is that uh, Peter McCormick will see a substantial part of his cost uh, returned, like in uh, yeah in other cases where this Joseph versus uh, Spiller principle uh, has been used. But with that said, we learned today uh, they need more time to struggle about these costs, and there will be a one-day hearing on or shortly after October the 17th. That is uh, still to be determined uh, based on everyone's uh, availability. But what struck me the most, uh, Mark, is that Peter McCormick is also requesting, and it is just a tiny detail, but pretty important. Well, it, it struck me as very important. He is requesting 100% of his costs back that he had to pay for the pre-trial hearing somewhere in this uh, trajectory, where Peter lost uh, on several points, and it ended up that he had to pay uh, Craig's cost of that uh, hearing. There was this paragraph on page one. It says that he is now fighting the cost ruling from that pre-trial hearing and he wants to unwind that and get his costs back from that uh, ruling back then. Now, and it makes total sense to me when you think of it. If this whole case was based around false evidence that was put in the case from the start, then 
most likely that ruling back then and the points that Craig uh, won was based on that same false evidence, uh, which makes it obvious to me that the judge should look into that and check if that uh, ruling should be... Uh, overturned? Overturned, yeah, that's probably a good, uh, good word, yeah. It also implies to me that if he is asking uh, that to be overturned and get his costs back, that he is also fighting to get 100% of the costs back for the rest of the trajectory of this whole uh, lawsuit. So I, I have the idea, just a sense, that Peter is really, yeah, trying to strike back uh, in, this, uh, in this case. Mm-hmm. I mentioned it before, I, probably also in, the, uh, in another episode, but my personal view on this thing is also that because it's such a sham case, I mean, think about it. You have 10 conferences. All 10 of them have been false. He has been lying. He has been presenting something that did not exist. He was kicked from those conferences because his papers were trash, you know, and he presented, yeah, but it was because... Uh, Peter's tweets were uh, harmful to me and uh, those people from those conferences have been reading them. That factually never happened. I said it before, it would not surprise me that Craig Wright will be forwarded in a new case, in a criminal case, uh, for criminal prosecution, for perjury, for fraud, for abuse of the legal system, contempt of court, I don't know what label they will give it, but it would not surprise me if it's going to end up uh, like that in this case. Mm We also got confirmation this month of a date on which Wright's appeal against the dismissal of his case against the developers will be heard. This will be on December 7th, and interestingly, it might be live on the Court of Appeals YouTube channel for those who want to watch proceedings. A reminder of this one, Wright is suing the developers of a collection of various Bitcoin and Bitcoin fork protocols to demand that he be given back billions of dollars in cryptocurrencies he says were stolen from him in the now infamous pineapple hack. For more information on this, please see Series 1, Episode 5 of Dr. Bitcoin. Wright's case was dismissed in March over the lack of merit, as Arthur's previously alluded to, but he filed leave to appeal the decision, which was granted last month, and it's this appeal that will be heard in December. That's it for Lawsuit Corner, and we'll move on to other matters. September started, for us, at the end of August when Bitcoin research outfit WizSec produced a three-minute YouTube video that showed someone signing Bitcoin's Genesis block with an Electrum wallet, something that should only be able to be done with Satoshi Nakamoto's private key. Arthur, has Satoshi returned and is he on YouTube? (laughs) Yeah, it seems so, doesn't it? It has to be. No, no, no. No, I watched that and I, I retweeted it because it was indeed, it was beautiful. It was an example of how a Satoshi signing can be made uh, to appear legit uh, just by implementing some sort of a man-in-the-middle attack. And I can tell you this one in the video was cleverly done. Now, the importance of this, of course, is that this could be the method Craig Wright used to trick John Matonis, Gavin Androsen and all the others into believing he had signed early Bitcoin blocks during the 2016 signing sessions. How likely is it, Arthur, that this is a method he used? Now, if you ask me, uh, extremely likely, Mark. Extremely likely. I, I described uh, this stuff already in my article about uh, the signing sessions uh, debacle. It's one of my earliest uh, articles when I uh, discovered uh, the long form to start uh, describing uh, things in, 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 in timelines. But um, yeah, 
what I discovered back then when I uh, inquired uh, this subject of the man in the middle attack, I noticed that with the electron bullets, it always comes back to the man in the middle attack, but there are variations of this uh, theme. And I am absolutely convinced that Craig Wright used one of them. We can of course not prove which one he used, but what we do know is that Although he's not a master coder, far from it, <laughs> but we are sure that he is capable enough to uh, figure such thing out with, uh, yeah, it, it, because it only needs one or two lines of code in the Electron Wallet. It's open source, so you can just um, change the code to your likings and implement an, uh, a man in the middle attack. It's actually pretty easy if you know how it works. It's funny, I remember when we did the episode in series one and you gave a lovely eloquent explanation of how it works and it's really interesting to see it happen because when you're describing it it takes quite a long time to describe and you think it you know can it can take a long time to execute could be quite tricky but watching it actually happen it's actually staggering how simple and quick it is to pull off Mm. especially when the person who you're i mean he did a lot of this in the background but especially when the person watching on doesn't know what you're doing Yeah, exactly. And that's what this video showed. uh, Absolutely wonderfully uh, done. We now come to the subject of BSV mining, which, as most people know, is about as profitable as taking your money and simply throwing it into the nearest canal. Before we get into this month's shenanigans, let's not forget that BSV supporters love to chirp about how Bitcoin mining is so centralised, with Wright saying in July this year that he believes there to be only three nodes in control of Bitcoin. Most other sources beg to differ, however, and list the number in the tens of thousands, but this is down to the definition of a node, which we don't need to go into here. What we do need to go into, however, is the state of BSV mining, which is about as healthy as that bit of bacon that fell down the side of your fridge some months ago. The reason for this, as we already know, is that BSV mining is hilariously expensive, and the cost has become too much for one mining pool who packed it in this month. Arthur, which mining pool was this, and what impact will it have? Yeah, that was kind of surprising news. It, it was not Tal, by the way. Uh, they still survive. But next to Tal, uh, there is, well, was, <laughs> a, f- a very large pool uh, who at times uh, had more hash rate as uh, Tal themselves. They were called the SBI Crypto Mining Pool. And as I said, they rather suddenly announced uh, to stop with BSV mining. And indeed, within a few days, they were gone. The impact it had is that now only Tal and a few much smaller pools like Zulu Pool, Gorilla Pool, ProHashing, Mining Dutch I remember, uh, they, they are the only ones left. I have a list here, <laughs> because next to uh, SBI Crypto we had uh, we have seen that SV Pool uh, left, that BCDDA uh, left, Via BTCA left, BitHash, BSVMining.io, F2 Pool, I still, yeah, that, that one I remember very well, it was... Uh, I think in the beginning of this year. Mm-hmm. Uh, if they consider BTC mining being uh, centralized, then yep, I consider BSV mining a tiny single point of uh, failure because with uh, a complete lack of any hash, BSV can be 51% attacked. We, we discussed this before. Yeah, without any effort and at almost uh, no cost. Uh, we saw that happen uh, last year's summer. You might remember that um, a 51% attack uh, cost over $6 million in uh, double spend damages for the BitMart uh, exchange. And together with the very low number of nodes and very low number of locations where BSV mining rigs are hosted, it yeah it takes hardly any effort uh, for anyone, eh? either uh, the bad guys like like hackers or 
the good, quote-unquote, guys like uh, official uh, government organizations, yeah, to take them down uh, completely. So, in short, there's nothing decentralized on BSV anymore. Another entity that ditched BSV this week was cryptocurrency exchange Bitcoin.de, which announced this month that it just couldn't hang on to BSV any longer and was getting shot of it. The reason the exchange gave for dumping the pile of hot trash was the recurring problems on the BSV network, which, sadly, it didn't go into. But then again, it doesn't really need to. No. <laughs> Unfortunately, we can't tell what the daily trading volume of BSV on Bitcoin.e was, but it's a fair bet that it has completely undermined the listing by LA token of BSV last month. Then again, perhaps not. BSV has had an absolute shocker of a time on LA token in the last month. So when we spoke about this in August, the 24-hour volume of BSV trading on LA token was $89,000. Today, it's $1,500. Whoa. Yeah. And some coins that see more volume than BSV on LA token are, get ready for this, Beer Money, Parrot Protocol, <laughs> Aqua Goat, <laughs> Popsicle Finance, and Bubble Fong. Oh my god. Bubblefong does 20 times more volume than BSV. Yeah, it's sad. Do you know the record for a delisting? <laughs> like, <laughs> how, how quickly has a coin been delisted once it's been listed? Oh yeah, nay, I, I have no idea. I mean, there are 20,000 uh, altcoins out there and I really don't keep track of all of them. So I, I don't know these numbers, but I can imagine that uh, within 6 to 12 months, uh, LA token will say bye-bye uh, BSV. It was nice to have you. Yeah, I get the feeling they are regretting that, that listing by now. Staying on the mining theme, it's a well-known fact that there are many out there who want to ban Bitcoin mining on environmental grounds. In Europe, this culminated in a narrowly defeated EU Parliament vote to ban the sale of proof-of-work coins within the bloc back in March, but these attempts haven't escaped Calvin Ayer's notice. He replied with this comment to a poll asking what would happen to BSV if proof-of-work mining was indeed banned. We can demonstrate that proof-of-work as made illegal is not how BSV works. We are already engaged in this lobbying. It's a matter of changing what they think they are talking about. A POW is not all created equal. Arthur, let's just unpack this for a bit. The core concept of BSV is that it's the original vision of Bitcoin as written in the Bitcoin white paper with no changes. So if a country or a group of countries bans proof of work as described in the Bitcoin white paper, then BSV should automatically be banned full stop. Yep. And yet here's Calvin Ayer saying that this is somehow all about how you perceive proof of work and that the kind of mining that BSV engages in is somehow the exact same as Satoshi intended and yet at the same time different enough to mean that it shouldn't be banned along with all the rest that follow the original vision. How can they match this claim that they don't engage in the same kind of mining as Bitcoin and yet still claim to be Bitcoin? <laughs> yeah, hilarious, isn't it? <laughs> Yeah, and there are numerous examples of BSV claiming that BSV is following uh, the Bitcoin white paper and Satoshi's intentions that he expressed in uh, around 2009-2010. But if you ask me, the reality is that uh, BSV is not following Satoshi nor his white paper at all. Yeah, BSV kicked uh, full nodes from the network as being not important, while Satoshi said that being decentralized uh, to the max is the most important feature of Bitcoin to survive long term, and it needs full nodes. 
And also, don't forget, Mark, if BSV is being adopted, eh, let's say they manage in, well, some alternative reality, they manage to be adopted. That means that demand for BSV is going up, that people want to have BSV. Then the same happens as what is happening with BTC. The price goes up and let's say BSV managed to reach $20,000 like uh, BTC is currently. Don't you think that all the miners will just start picking their nose and not be interested in BSV anymore? No, of course not. A lot of mining uh, companies will also start mining BSV because it has an interesting price at such a point in uh, time. And then you get the same situation as with BTC, that the hash rate is uh, going up and uh, will reach uh, the levels of, uh, of BTC. When there is a ban on proof of work, then of course they will fall under the same uh, ban. So, so let's say all proof of work is created equal after all. Yes, it certainly is. And I don't think any twisting of words by Calvin Air is going to change the minds of these people. <laughs> it doesn't work like that. <laughs> we end this month on an interesting tidbit from Orr Weinberger, CEO of crypto wallet recovery service Brute Brothers, who discovered something interesting about the name Bitcoin. It nearly wasn't called that. Weinberger found out that the day before Satoshi Nakamoto bought the Bitcoin.org domain through the anonymous speech service, which hides the true buyer of a web domain, anonymous speech also oversaw the purchase of www.netcoin.org. This would appear to be a potential alternative name for the project, suggesting that Satoshi hadn't yet made up his mind on what to call it at the time of the purchases in August 2008. Arthur, this is interesting from a Bitcoin history point of view, but it's more important from a Craig Wright point of view, isn't it? Oh, absolutely, Mark, because I think that this Orr Weinberger guy who made this uh, amazing discovery is right. It strongly appears that Satoshi bought a domain that he intended uh, to use, but decided not to the next day when he instead chose the name Bitcoin as the definite uh, name for the, his project. And it was a brilliant last minute change, if you ask me, because uh, looking back at 14 years of uh, Bitcoin history, the brand name Bitcoin has uh, settled uh, pretty well. Mm -hmm. So, and yeah, I don't think uh, Netcoin is just as uh, catchy, but well, that's uh, up for discussion, uh, of course. But indeed, how does this relate to Craig Wright? First of all, he never, ever mentioned Netcoin. Never. When I received that material from uh, the Holmod uh, trial, there was this handwritten uh, Bitcoin white paper. It's a recent yeah, forgery, of course. Of course. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> what else did you expect? Yeah, of course. But, uh, but seriously, this, this handwritten white paper, when I received it yesterday, there was this appendix to this um, white paper on a brown paper, and he wrote a list of, if I remember by head, five, five, six, seven alternate names for Bitcoin. Netcoin was not on that list on his handwritten white paper. So yeah, that's pretty telling. There's two options here. Either someone completely independent of Bitcoin bought that domain name from the same domain registration service the day before Bitcoin.org was registered, but it had never any intention of being anything like a cryptocurrency, just a complete freak accident, or Craig Wright is lying. And I think I know which one I tend to believe more. <laughs> yeah, same here. There is something in August 2007, 
which is the date above uh, what he put above that handwritten white paper, when he had that list of names, it was of course a year later when the real domain was bought. The funny thing is, when it is indeed not on that list, then it might happen that it uh, that that name came up in the year after August 2007, uh, leading up, uh, up to uh, August uh, 2008 when the actual domain was bought, mm -hmm. Netcoin first and Bitcoin later. So yeah, he will have an excuse uh, along those lines, I expect. Mm -hmm. Well, that's it for this month's update. Um, we're already busy working on part two of our three-part Hodlinaut trial series, which we hope will be up towards the end of October, given that the verdict is due around that time. Because of the work involved in this, and also because of prior commitments, such as my 40th birthday, hurrah, there won't be any monthly update next month, but we will instead release the Rory Catherine Jones interview to our Dr. Bitcoin supporters to make up for this. Next month, there will also be an announcement about the revamp of our Supporters Club scheme, which will open up our bonus content to many, many more people, as well as other benefits. We're very excited about this, and we hope you will be too when the time comes. Until then, Arthur, thank you as usual for your insight and your expert use of Occam's razor. <laughs> Thanks, Mark. Happy to be here as always. And I will see you next month for our Hot Not special. Yep, I'll be there. Thank you for listening to this episode of Dr. Bitcoin, the man who wasn't Satoshi Nakamoto. If you enjoyed what you heard, we'd really appreciate a rating or even a quick review on your platform of choice in order to get this out to as many people as possible. Don't forget to subscribe to the podcast on your chosen platform in order to get new episodes the moment they drop. And if you'd like to follow us on Twitter for podcast announcements and other nonsense, you'll find us at Dr. Bitcoin Pod. Thanks very much for listening and we'll speak to you again soon. You've been listening to Dr. Bitcoin, the man who wasn't Satoshi Nakamoto. Written by Mark Hunter, with additional material by Arthur Van Pelt. Editing and production by Mark Hunter. This has been a Contented Media Production.